This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole also had a pretty tough week. He's purged Derek Sloan and now explains how he's still your true blue candidate. Now that Julie Payette has stepped down, a disgraced governor general, the debate kicks up as to if we actually need a governor general. We'll talk to former Lieutenant David Onley, who explains the importance of the position. And a human touch goes a very long way in isolation, even if just virtually. Let's get talking. You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Do you owe an apology to the workers at Rideau Hall, past and present, who suffered in that workplace? Do you, owe, do you owe an apology to them? Do you owe an apology to Canadians? I think... As a government, we've demonstrated time and time again how important it is uh, to create workplaces that are free and safe from harassment uh, and, uh, and in which uh, people can, uh, can do their important jobs uh, in, uh, in safety and, secu- uh, and security. So that would be a no? Alex Pearson with you on this Friday, January 22nd. Oh, lordy, lordy. Did we need this Friday? Do we need this Friday? Boy, I'm glad it's Friday. Holy, this week was fast. It flew by, but it was busy. It was busy. So I hope you're uh, starting to put the feet up and uh, relax your shoulders. So the Prime Minister has not had a great day. Uh, His day started off calling the Queen, of course, to let her know that he had hired a nutty cuckoo Governor General and she's going to be resigning. And I'm sure the Majesty, Her Majesty was uh, none too impressed, even with his charm offensive. Because there's nothing charming about the events of the last 24 hours. Sure is alarming. Not charming, though. And should the Prime Minister wear this? Of course he should. Will he? Don't hold your breath. Because Justin Trudeau was nothing short of a hamster wheel of robotic talking points where he deflects and dodges and delivers non-answers. I mean, it's embarrassing to watch. i got to be honest. It's been a bad week for him. you got the cancellation of Keystone. You've got the botched vaccine rollout. And then this disgrace of a governor general that he, and he alone hired. I mean, without question, he should wear this mess. But of course, he is the emperor who wears no clothes. And so he'll just, he'll keep learning from this. And in no time, this will all become a very teachable moment for us, all of us. If we have learned nothing over the last five years, it's that there are different rules for Justin Trudeau than there are for anybody else, certainly if you're in politics. His whole press conference today was nothing but questions about the governor general, and each was like met with this total non-answer. I mean, is the sky blue? We'll continue to improve conditions. Uh, uh, Do you expect, uh, accept responsibility? You know, and then he starts saying, we'll improve safety and security. I mean, it was super embarrassing, if not completely unacceptable. And because reporters can only call in and ask one question before being hung up on. There's actually no way to challenge the prime minister. And that's what he gets away with. And it's appalling. It should not be happening. 
You know, he was pointedly asked questions like, do you regret hiring Julie Payette? And then every other question asked of him, he simply just didn't answer. He, he should have nothing but regrets in hiring an astronaut for a job she clearly hated and clearly shouldn't have been hired into based on all her past actions. There were so many red flags that were documented, including harassment allegations uh, about Ms. Payette prior to her being named Governor General. So, Prime Minister, where does the buck stop? Where does the responsibility lie for this? Uh, obviously, uh, the vetting process that was in place was followed, uh, but uh, obviously we're going to also look at uh, ways we can strengthen and improve the vetting process for high-level appointments. Really? Really? I mean, I wouldn't, even be able to, I wouldn't even be able to give that answer with a straight face. I don't know what's worse. What's worse, not vetting? Or if the Prime Minister did vet Payette and then purposely turned a blind eye to the red flags that she came wrapped in? I mean, he said during the press conference, vetting was vigorous. Well, if that is the case, then how could Mr. Trudeau not be troubled by the accusations from the past employees of both the Montreal Science Centre and Canadian Olympic Committee? I mean, these are two crown corporations where Payette was also accused of bullying by dozens of employees and who were, you know, thrilled to see her forced out. You know, there you go. They could have looked at that. I have a hard time imagining that this Sunny Ways Prime Minister, the guy who lectures the rest of us on how to behave, could really be that stupid. Sunny Ways, okay, my friends. Sunny Ways. I mean, it's hard to think that he would make an appointment knowing the track record of this woman and could be putting government staff at risk. And he could have spared himself the self-inflicted wound because Stephen Harper, as you well know, put this system in place to make appointments like this, like the governor general. He formed a nonpartisan committee that would compile, you know, a list of qualified appointments, vet them, present the choices to the prime minister, who would then, of course, make sure to dot the I's and T's. That's how we got David Johnson, who ended up, by the way, being very successful, serving for seven years. But of course... Trudeau came into power because Harper created the system, even if it was a good one, he just scrapped it and did things his way, which clearly backfired. And it will likely be a very costly mistake that we, the taxpayers, are going to pay for. Because it takes less than 30 seconds to Google this woman. You know, and it's very clear, Payette never did play well with others. This isn't someone with just one or two cases of bad behavior. There's an actual track record over decades of Pyatt being really horrid to those who worked for her over the years. And that is on top of assault allegations, including those with her ex-husband and a fatal car crash that Payette was involved in back in 2011. And I'm no employment lawyer, but if the prime minister ignored warning signs and allowed for this toxic workplace to fester over a period of years, he and we, the taxpayers, could be looking to have to settle numerous suits brought forward by past employees because they would be protected by common law and workplace safety laws. And they probably have a great case because Hyatt's bad behavior was known by the prime minister and clearly given a pass for a good long time. And I'm pretty sure that those who got bullied out of their jobs did not get the same cushy exit this disgraced Governor General is getting. I mean, it's crazy. She walks out the door with just three years on the job. She'll make a $150,000 pension. She gets a grant to start a new business or a foundation. And she'll get that lifetime expense account. 
I mean, uh, really? I mean, even a disgraced governor general gets those perks that we, the taxpayers, have to shovel out? And, and is the prime minister looking to claw it back? Will Madame Payette get a full annuity and expense account despite not or despite resigning early? And given Madame Payette's record of questionable expenses, given the questions about her judgment on how she conducts herself, do you believe that she can be trusted to use those expenses responsibly, or will you change the rules to require public disclosure of those? Uh, this country has uh, very clear rules and regulations and processes and procedures uh, in place uh, to follow on uh, in, in these cases of uh, reporting, uh, reporting expenses or indeed on annuities for governor generals. Uh, those processes will be followed. Oh, God. The answer is no. Just say no. You're not answering the I'm question. I'm not changing anything. I mean, he's not answering the question. You're right. He never does. Just say no because you sound stupid. You know, that's all we get is no, no answers, non-answers. I mean, would it kill this guy just once, just once to accept responsibility for his screw-ups? Just once. I take full responsibility. You don't, though, ever. And without question, this is a massive screw-up that he did. And he should be held to account, but likely won't because it's always different when it comes to Justin Trudeau's screw-ups. The same interactions could be experienced very differently. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Way back then. Look, I'm sure we'll see in um, time what's in this scathing report, because if we don't get it in the report, we will see it in court documents once I'm sure civil cases come forward. Because they will, the, the details will come out in a court, a court report. You cannot redact those. But what we will never get is a straight answer. What we will never get is accountability from that guy, because he knows nothing sticks to him, and he knows he can hide in his cottage, and he can control the media from his front door. I mean, it is absolutely BS, and how he gets away with this nonsense is beyond me, because he's embarrassed his country, he's embarrassed the queen, he's embarrassed himself. And he once did, you know, he once did say, seriously, he said he sees the prime minister's job as being ceremonial. I assure you, being a prime minister is not ceremonial. He sees that, though, as a ceremonial job. I mean, maybe he should just take the governor general job and go cut ribbons. Because he's not a leader. Because if he was, he would have come out today and said, the buck stops with me. That's what leaders No question, it's been a very tough week for the Prime Minister. You got the botched vaccines cancellation of Keystone XL, and now the Governor General resigning in disgrace. And he's going to, or he should have to, answer for all of these uh, self-inflicted wounds. Or maybe he won't, because he seems to get away kind of with everything. It's also been a bit of a tough week for Aaron O'Toole, who was forced to take swift action in removing MP Derek Sloan from the party after months of self-inflicted wounds by Sloan himself that really threatened to overshadow a looming election that could come at any time, assuming we do get a new governor general in. And I've been asking, where is Aaron O'Toole? I found him. He joins us now where he and his party had been plotting, I guess, policy and strategy ahead of next week's resumption of Parliament because, Mr. O'Toole, you've been at the Conservative Caucus Retreat, and I say thank you for joining us and a happy birthday to you. <laughs> thank you very much, Alex. Uh, it was a great couple of days for our caucus retreat, and we're ready for Parliament on Monday. Good stuff. Well, yeah, Parliament, which whichever way it works, I'm not so happy with the way it's working because it's not real uh, in the sense that you can actually get anything done, but it does resume next week, and there's a lot um, to, to go after right now. Certainly, 
concerns over the uh, vaccine. And now I'll get your thoughts on the governor general. And did you um, buy anything of what the prime minister said this morning about her being vigorously um, checked or or thoroughly uh, given a background check? Well, frankly, I don't believe the prime minister and um, the the track record of of her performance and the news that came out about uh, the easy ability to see that this performance was predictable because it was there in other other jobs and other life situations meant that he looked at at uh, this decision in a very casual political way. He didn't use the proper way that that had been established by the Conservatives, which was to have a committee to look at these appointments. He didn't consult the opposition. And like everything, they have a very flashy uh, announcement on something and there's zero follow through or their performance is terrible. And that's now the case with our head of state. And we're now in this position for the first time in our history to have a, a scandal related to the to the governor general where, where they resign and, and we're out a, a kind of an official representative for the Queen in Canada. You know, the the main um, feedback on, on the governor general and this scathing report, which we have not yet seen, I don't know if you have been shown the, the report. I mean, I'm sure we'll see it at some point. It will be heavily redacted. But most um, people, you know, the main kind of narrative right now is that the prime minister, this is his responsibility because it was he who picked this particular uh, appointment. Um, but but what should the penalty be for the prime minister on this? Everyone says he should wear it. How How does that look? Well, the prime minister never accepts responsibility for anything, uh, even his own treatment of his own team. You know, we remember uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, Jane Philpott, Selena, uh, Chavant, a whole range of MPs that he he just disrespected. They they left or were fired. Um, That's his track record. I think here he owes the Canadian public a return to the the tried and true process that produced David Johnson, probably, I think, the best governor general we've had in in Canadian history. Um, it should be non-political. There's a minority parliament. He should be consulting the opposition parties so, so that we get this right. Because quite frankly, I don't trust his judgment on a lot of these things. And if you look at what happened with her, she's she. it went on too long as well. So uh, unfortunately, he really botched this appointment. And opposition, um, and I, I think this probably came from the Conservatives, but the opposition say that they should have um, a say in, in who is chosen. Will that happen? I mean, uh, we're in a minority situation. We could go to the polls at any point. If there's any legislation that gets put through now, as I understand it, you know, we've got a Supreme Court justice overseeing things right now. But, that, you know, if anything like an aid package has to be pushed through, that puts him almost in a, a conflict of interest. And so how fast do you see the procedure moving and do you think the opposition will have a say? Well, aid pa- package, Alex, it's a minority parliament and there's rumors he wants an election. So is he in a conflict of interest? Absolutely. He might want to walk to Rideau Hall, whoever's living there, and make some bogus claim that he needs an election now. Uh, because of the crisis, this is what we've all been reading for weeks. They're 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 actually putting the, the interests of the Liberal Party ahead of the health and economic issues of the country. So yes, he's in a direct conflict of interest uh, to with respect to who the next Governor General is, because that Governor General may decide whether he gets an election or not. So um, it's ridiculous to think after his total failure on this appointment that he should get to do this solo again. Come on, show some respect. For the role, Prime Minister, go back to the 
the, the appointments process that worked very well, and we would work with that. Let me flip this over to you because uh, there were a lot of headlines coming out from the Conservatives this week. MP, MP Derek Sloan has now been kicked out of the party. Um, I don't sense that he's going to go off quietly. Um, and I think, you know, there will be um, others saying, OK, well, who is next? I mean, you know that there's going to be a lot of mudslinging going on. Um, and and clearly, um, you know, you, you hear people saying, well, Aaron O'Toole is abandoning his true blue. You know, he, he ran on being the true blue conservative. And some people do see this kind of as a slight in building a bigger party. Do you have to become more progressive and abandon, you know, the true blue that you ran on for leadership? We have to reach out to millions more Canadians to win the next election, uh, uh, Alex. And we do that through articulating our conservative principles to new people and do that by building respect with groups of people that haven't voted with us before. I'm still very true blue, strong on the economy, strong on national defense. Uh, There's been no one stronger on China, on foreign policy. It's Mr. Sloan and some voices only define their conservatism as, quote unquote, the true conservatism. That's actually not reflective of the history of the Conservative Party, going back to McDonald, where we're always a center center-right party that respects the difference of views on, on social issues and on, 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 some, on some other issues. And we're usually rock solid and, and all aligned on fiscal and, and foreign policy and public safety issues. And so what, what a team has to do is respect one another. And that was the problem with Mr. Sloan from the start. We saw Mr. Mr. Bernier leave a team with a lot of anger and, and he almost won the party leadership. So Mr. Sloan is showing that he only considers his narrow views, whereas we're fighting for all Canadians. And at a time that our country's in debt, unemployment, and national unity crisis, we need a serious and professional Conservative Party. And that's what myself and my entire team is offering. When will we start to see, um, you know, given that we could go to an election at any time, and you are not a new politician, but there are people who don't know you and, and wonder, well, who is this Aaron guy and, and what will he run on? Uh, when will we start to see some real clarity on, on what you would bring or offer to Canadians? Well, anybody that follows politics knows what I've been standing up for. You know, people in the energy sector, working Canadians, including auto workers in my own riding, and in southern Ontario, steel and aluminum. I do a lot of work with veterans, as you know, Alex, as a veteran myself, our military. But we're going to be articulating the vision of our team. That's what the meetings today were for. And sure, I'm not that well-known. I wear that as a badge of honour. I'm, I'm a dad. I'm a veteran. I worked in the private sector. I've helped military families. I've helped the vulnerable. Not a career politician. And you know what? I haven't dropped files and, and screwed up in politics. You get a lot of headlines if, if you make mistakes. I try and build winning teams, focus on the needs of our country, and get things done. That's what we need post-COVID. This is about who can secure our economic future, get people working again, get the public finances in order, make Canada respected by our allies again. Um, I can do that. And the more people see that I've got the experience and that the Conservative team is ready to govern, I think we'll win the next election. I think it should come after uh, the health crisis that we're in, but we'll be ready whenever that comes. 
What would be something that you would offer that people might be surprised about? Because generally speaking, um, people assume that a conservative running is only going to worry about economic issues or, or one or two ballot issues. But what what on offer would you put in um, to maybe sway some of the people in the areas that are toughest to get um, a conservative support, like in the bigger uh, downtown rural or urban centers? Well, a couple of things I've been talking a lot about, and you probably know this, Alex, is I'm trying to repair our relationship with private sector unions. I think working yeah. Canadians, whether it's the, in, in Hamilton, so the GTHA, uh, they've been let down constantly by the Trudeau government on trade, on tariffs. Uh, let's repair those relationships because I want it, the same goals as their union leaders, which is work, uh, progress. I want projects built in Canada. We need the, the economy firing again. The other thing I think people would know that since I left the military, I've worked on mental health as an issue, both for first responders and for people in my own community. I think mental health is in focus for a lot of Canadians because of the isolation and challenges in COVID. Very proud one of our MPs, Todd Doherty, passed a unanimous motion at the end of last session to create a 988 National Suicide Prevention Hotline. I think we're a compassionate party. We want families to be strong so that communities are strong and our country is strong. And whether it's mental health, whether it's a job, whether it's uh, you know standing up for, for better trade deals and other things, that, that's what they're going to see from the Conservatives. And would you ever, I mean, given what we've been through in the last 11 months uh, or eternity, whichever it feels to you, but, you know, would you ever think of something like a basic income, a guaranteed basic income, which has become a really big talking point? Well, I think, no, we, we've seen the problems with the CERB, Alex, and I'm sure you've talked to small businesses, restaurant owners and others. They had difficulty hiring people because of the impact of basically a guaranteed income, the CERB. It, it changed the, the labor market. What we have to do is help people that are, are, are dispossessed out of jobs or, or have an injury or something like that. We have to improve our EI system, provide more access, including to self-employed people. But there's a nobility in work. I say whether you get up at 5 a.m. To, to drive your cab in Mississauga or to, to work in the forestry industry in Surrey, B.C. or in Kelowna, B.C., there's a nobility in that. And I think particularly new Canadians, they come to Canada for opportunity to work hard for their family. So I don't want to change that fundamental structure, but I think Canadians need to know that there's a safety net for people that are struggling or, or, or are left out of, of progress. But we need to focus on working. We can't have the quality of life we enjoy if people aren't being productive in the economy, paying taxes, moving the country forward. The, the Liberals are already showing there's a lot of risk with the debt we have now. So we need we need jobs. We need to secure our economic future in the in the next election. It's going to be a very big hill to climb, regardless of uh, who wins the next election. But um, of course, we'll talk before then. Mr. O'Toole, happy birthday to you. Um, enjoy it inside your house. And uh, we appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Alex. Look forward to speaking again. All right, great to have you here on this Friday. Uh, the question is, do we actually even need a governor general? This is a, not a new debate, certainly, but the sudden resignation of Governor General Payette will, of course, renew the question of whether or not we even need uh, an appointment like this. Certainly a lot of younger Canadians will say it's nothing more than symbolic. And the position is to represent the Queen, you know, our head of state. 
you know, and while ribbon cuttings and things like attending ceremonies is a big part of the job, there are actually some serious and consequential um, issues where the GG plays a vital role. I'd give you the example of when the opposition, including the Bloc, the Liberals and NDP, tried to form a coalition and essentially mount a coup against Stephen Harper. Well, Harper went to the governor general, who then was Macal Jean. I'm pretty sure. And uh, she ultimately made the decision to allow him to prorogue government and stop the opposition from taking over. And so, you know, the role of this governor general is to keep a continuous and stable government and safeguard against abuses of power. David Onley is former lieutenant governor of Ontario and joins me now. Good to have you, David. Great um, to be and with also, you. Yeah, a former colleague of City TV yeah. where we would run around <laughs> reporting. But um, where are you on this? I mean, I, I, I suggest we keep the, the position of governor general. Mm-hmm. But what is the importance? Why would we keep one in 2021? A, a great question, and it's one that I pose as the fundamental and basic question in my course at the U of T Scarborough that I'm right at the present time teaching, um, and it's called The Crown, Parliament, and the People. And it's titled that because um, it stands. our system stands in contradistinction to the United States whose republic begins with the words, we the people, they start with, we the people, and have so far had um, a revolution, uh, a war with Canada, um, a civil war in the 1860s, and for all intents and purposes, have been involved and now now are involved in a, a cultural civil war that's been going on for quite a while, to the extent that, you know, President Biden, in his, one of his earliest comments, that we need to end this uncivil war. So our system stands in very a complete contradistinction between the two. Um, we begin with the crown and then work authority through parliament, and then finally to we the people, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a system that began in 1791. Um, that was with the passing of the Constitutional Act. And the significance of that act more than anything else, was the creation of the Office of Governor-General and in the provinces, the Office of Lieutenant Governors. And, you know, at that time, 1791, those two positions preceded Parliament, as we know it, uh, preceded the Parliament buildings, certainly, preceded Confederation, uh, preceded the right to vote, as we know it today, and certainly preceded the right for women to vote. Uh, And it harkened back to a time in 1791 where it was created because of the concerns about the American system and what the Americans might do in terms of marching north, which, of course, eventually they did in 1812. So it's not a system and a position, the vice-regal position, that was just let's poof out of thin air, uh, create a position that is ceremonial and subservient to, you know, the great white mother across the sea, to use a cliche. Uh, Not Mm -hmm. that at all. It it was in contradistinction to the American system. But significantly more than that, it it set in motion a series of events or allowed for the growth of a series of events, which eventually led to um, confederation, which eventually led to voting rights as we know it today, um, and has been, over time, a position that has morphed and evolved considerably. Now, I'll give you the extent of it. 
Uh, you talked in the introduction about the ceremonial role, and that's very, very true, both for the governor general and the lieutenant governor, along with the constitutional role. Well, the first lieutenant governor of the province of Ontario, John Graves Simcoe, upon arrival in uh, Upper Canada in 1792, in his first communication back to the Crown, outlined his invasion plans of the United States <laughs> with the intent of putting a document on the desk of the President of the United States to say, you lose, we are taking over again. Uh, because he had the authority to do so. Mm -hmm. That was 1792. It never happened for a variety of reasons, obviously. But he had that kind of power. And through the decades and then the centuries, that power morphed and changed, and it dwindled, and it became more. And a good thing that it did, um, because along with it came the rise of democracy, as we know it, and the right to vote, and the whole concept of citizen rights and leading to, especially in the province of Ontario, we have great, should have great pride in this, um, the, the actual first legislation uh, in the British Empire to first limit and then abolish slavery. Because right. in the early 1790s, there were slaves here in Ontario. And many of them were owned by the original elected representatives of the Assembly in the province of Ontario. And it was John Graves Simcoe who did away with it. So he started the process of doing away with it. So symbolically, over time, the position has changed and changed dramatically. But ultimately, the the fundamental responsibility and importance of the position is that constitutional safeguard. And, And what I'd like to point out, as we've been watching with, you know, almost morbid fascination of what's been going on in the United States for months and months and months, is the, the, the bitter, bitter animus between uh, the parties and the individual senators and congresspeople. You, you have to reach the conclusion that they actually hate each other more than they love their country. And there is no real referee to yeah. prevent these kind of things, this kind of animus from developing and just becoming part of the, uh, of the process, uh, quite frankly. It's a viciousness that just doesn't exist in our legislatures. We shout at each other, um, and we say harsh things to each other, but it's not the animus. And one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons is that the vice-regal official, whether it's the governor general or the lieutenant governors, representing the queen, and at some point in the near future we would presume, or the distant future, who knows exactly, representing the king, represent a system where that, that our elected officials have bought into. So during my time of office, whether it was Dalton McGinty uh, and John Tory or Dalton McGinty um, and, you, you know, uh, and whoever else and Kathleen Wynne, um, they all agreed, just structurally agreed, that the vice-regal representative was the ultimate referee. So there's no question in my mind that Dalton McGinty, during my term, and Kathleen Wynne, they were premiers. There's no question about that. But they had to come to me, had to come to the lieutenant governor and ask permission to do certain things. And I had the authority, as does the governor general, to say yay or nay, as you alluded to moments ago in terms of Mikhail Jean and prorogation. 
So yeah, which which actually makes it quite terrifying because, like, do we really want Julia Payette actually to making those decisions given um, her what seems well, to be a lack of judgment? I mean, you know. Yeah, well, that's you raise the, the a, you raise yeah. a really really excellent question because I, I'm in fact my class uh, on Monday is being changed dramatically to handle this one topic alone right. uh, because you know. I, I had the great privilege uh, because I found the whole experience yesterday very sad, uh, very very disappointing. It's just, it's just too bad uh, it has unfolded. But I had the pleasure of meeting her both in her um, professional capacity or amateur capacity uh, as a musician, as a pianist, uh, years ago, uh, as well as meeting her at the final space shuttle launch mm-hmm. uh, down at Cape Kennedy, along with the other Canadian astronauts as part of a Canadian delegation and reception. And she's a charming person, engaging person. Um, and when she was appointed, I'm just going, wow, this is, this is really quite amazing. But, you know, in, in retrospect, and maybe not even in retrospect, had a different selection process been, uh, had been used, um, we don't need the mindset and the personality of the hot shot, and I say it respectfully, test pilot, and the you know right stuff astronaut. That's not the temperament or the personality right. that's required. You you need something very much closer to diplomacy, and yeah. a, a judicial capacity. And you know I, I think that is what we have seen out of previous governors general uh, is that kind of judicious nature and that. Um, that capacity to to have diplomacy just as part of your process, as opposed to the decision making split second decision making process required of astronauts of I'm doing this right now. Yeah. Don't tell me what to do. I'm doing it. Um, right. The two just don't mix. They just don't. Well, I'm not sure if you're interested in the job, but we'll wait and see. You <laughs> certainly know what to do with it. I'm up against the clock on this one. But um, we'll chat again because I know he needs to get someone in very soon. We're in a minority government situation, and um, a, well, a Supreme I, Court judge could find themselves in a conflict of interest quite soon if uh, if, if legislation has to come. Uh, we'll, come we'll hope not, uh, but uh, yeah. we'll see. Thank Stay you. Stay tuned very much. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. Likewise. Take care. Good to have you on this Friday. Um, One of the biggest cruelties of COVID-19, without question, is the isolation it enforces on the most vulnerable. And I think that once we look back and start measuring the collateral damage, we're going to find that loneliness actually killed a lot of the elderly and it wasn't the virus itself. And there is a Toronto palliative care physician who's teamed up with a music producer to start giving seniors a chance to relive their fondest memories while also improving their health and their well-being by giving them a personal touch with what they call virtual reality therapy. Dr. Gina Kim is a palliative care physician, also co-founder of Express Service Society. She joins us now. Good to have you, doctor. Thank you, Alex, for inviting me. Let's um, talk a little bit. I mean, we have heard the stories. We've certainly seen the the heartbreaking pictures of an elderly person just staring out the window, just uh, longing for a loved one or someone who cares to show up. And I've heard stories from people who said my my parent literally died of a broken heart because they were so lonely. What are some of the things that you have seen, the, the cause and effect of isolating our most vulnerable to protect them? But what's the side effect? I'm really glad that you bring up this point, Alex. Uh, Even before the pandemic, isolation, loneliness, and depression is 
a huge problem for our elderly and our palliative care population. But of course, this has been exacerbated to unprecedented levels due to the pandemic itself. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll tell you, uh, so I'll tell you a little bit about uh, the setting that I practice in. Uh, I work on a palliative care unit uh, for people who are at the end of life. And so what this means Mm -hmm. is that most of my patients are in the last uh, days, weeks, or months of life. And due to the pandemic visiting restrictions, of course, uh, for patients in these last days, potentially, uh, they're restricted from seeing their family members. Uh, And it'll really depend on the site that they're in. Uh, But if you can imagine someone who comes from a large family, uh, maybe 5, 10, 20 people, and having to designate only two of those family members who are able to see their dying relative in their last days, it's been incredibly difficult for both patients and families. And so, you know, I've been able to witness this. And um, hopefully one of the ways, although there's nothing that we can do, you know, it's a very important public health measure to implement these visiting restrictions. I think there's a lot that we can do to support patients and families throughout this time. And one of those ways is this uh, virtual reality therapy. I can't even imagine not being by my dad's bedside when he passed or my stepfather when he passed. Um, Those final moments are so, so crucial um, certainly for the grieving period, but also to provide comfort to, to the person who's passing. And I, I know that it's got to be incredibly stressful on doctors and frontline workers who have essentially had to be a window to loved ones, you know, holding up iPads and things like that to, to you know, do those kinds of um, uh, goodbyes. But what have you found? I mean, you create this virtual reality, reality therapy. What is it specifically and how is it helping um, patients in their in their final days? Mm-hmm. Well, we all kind of have a sense of what virtual reality therapy is. We've probably seen a little bit on TV and in the media before. Um, people wear uh, these head-mounted headsets, um, and they're able to experience uh, an immersive, sometimes a very visceral experience. And so um, I think it's pretty easy to provide virtual therapy in general in the sense that People put on this headset and they can select from a, uh, a library of experiences what they would like to experience for that day. What we're talking about here is more personalized VR therapy, meaning something that is special to the inv- individual. This might be helping them relive a fond memory that they have, um, helping to uh, re- let them remain connected with their loved ones or reminding them of uh, the, the identity, uh, the identity that they've likely lost related to just the aging um, and the illness experience. And what has your uh, takeaway been since starting this kind of therapy? Have you noticed a tangible change within, within I think, on both sides of this, for the family and for, for the uh, patient? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, I'll tell you that uh, these personalized VR programs can be very expensive. Uh, the site that I, or the hospital that I work at, we're fortunate in that we're, uh, we just received a little bit of funding to pay for a little bit of this. And so we haven't even scratched the surface of what we can, the impact um, that we can have on people using this VR therapy, hence the, the reason for starting Express Service Society. And so and um, as you, yep. You know, as you should say, and so do you work with a musician and a producer? Like, do, do you give almost, um, do you almost cater the program to what the individual would want to see, whether it's 
uh, certain musics that they enjoy or certain pictures or visuals? How does it work in that way? That's exactly it. So we know that memories can be can be triggered not just by visuals, but by music and by sense as well. Um, The problem is that this level of personalization, um, it's not easy. Um, First, uh, the efficiency and the cost is not there. Um, The reason to partner up with uh, Didier Tovel, uh, he, as you said, he's a music producer and a creative director. Um, He's really been the creative brains behind the initiative and uh, the clothing line. Um, And he's really just been uh, an incredible person in donating a lot of his time, his resources, his funds in order to start this initiative. So it's a bit of using using people from the creative field and both the medical and research field to to create this really neat experience where people can now use the money that they would normally spend on fun clothing um, and put that money towards a social cause. And um, ultimately, what is the goal with this? So our goal uh, is to raise uh, $100,000. And this is really just mission one of Express Service Society. Uh, Each new ESS drop, we'll say, will uh, benefit a different cause. So our first cause is, again, providing VR programs uh, to the elderly and palliative care population. So not only funding or helping to fund these programs, but also finding uh, creative solutions to make uh, personalized therapy more efficient and more cost effective for hospitals and institutionalized settings to afford. And if you can, just characterize um, some of your findings when you see the reaction um, to to someone watching and and getting this kind of therapy. What's your takeaway of what they've um, experienced or gotten from it? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I don't think I can comment on specific details just um, for the sake of patient privacy, but I'll tell you, when you see someone experiencing something where you've triggered a special memory of them or something that is special to who they are, you mm-hmm. see it in their reaction. It's a very visceral reaction, and it's truly a beautiful thing. This is These are the type of experiences where... You know, there's a in the medical field, in the palliative care field, there's so much in terms of pharmacological strategies that we can do to help manage people's right. physical and psychological symptoms. But I think experiences or therapies just like this, the VR therapy, um, is one way that we can really improve the aging experience and the dying experience of these individuals. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of compassion, which goes so far. It is called Express Service Society, if you're interested in learning more. And Dr. Kim, I appreciate your time on this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Alex. We'll see where that takes you. There, there you go. Look, small things. Obviously, this pandemic is going to, I think, in, enforce a lot of much-needed change um, that's been needed for a very long time. But boy, if you can just... In those final moments, certainly at a time like this, offer someone a simple little bit of compassion as well as, um, you know, hope and maybe a good memory or two. That's not a bad thing. You can join us, of course, Monday through Friday, 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point and this is Global News Radio.